Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 213, The Lighthouse Tragedy. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about a tragedy that took place on Boston Harbor in November 1718 that cut short the lives of six people, including the first keeper of Boston Light and four members of his household. To find out what happened that morning, we're going to look at what Boston Harbor was like before the construction of Boston Light, why Boston Harbor needed a lighthouse, how it got built, and who was chosen as the first keeper. We'll also look at the founding father who was moved to poetry by the tragedy, as well as the centuries-long search for those lost verses by Ben Franklin and the 20th century hoax that got repeated as truth. Then we'll close out the show with a quick look at the present and future of Boston Light on Little Brewster Island. But before I talk about the lighthouse tragedy, it's time for a word from the sponsor of this week's show. Liberty & Co. sells unique products inspired by the American Revolution. Many of them have themes tied to the historical events, locations, and people of Boston's past. One of the latest offerings from Liberty & Co. is a line of historically accurate coffee and tea by Oliver Pluff. As we descend into the depths of winter, it's the perfect time to curl up with a mug of your favorite hot beverage. And Liberty & Co. has you covered. The Boston Tea Party was one of the first revolutionary acts, with disguised Bostonians dumping 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbor on December 16, 1773. You can join the party with Liberty & Co.'s Teas of the Boston Tea Party a selection of four period-appropriate loose-leaf teas presented in corked glass vials and a wooden display case. Or choose the East India Company bundle, with a beautiful stoneware mug decorated with the same company trademark that adorned the chests that Bostonians chopped open, alongside a canister of oolong tea with a matching East India Company trademark. Not a tea drinker? Coffee also played an important role in the revolution with coffee houses like Boston's Green Dragon providing an important meeting place for revolutionaries like the Sons of Liberty, the Loyal Nine, and the Committee of Correspondence, where they could argue over Whig politics and plan the Tea Party in Paul Revere's ride. Liberty & Co. offers a special Green Dragon blend of ground coffee in a beautiful canister that has the history of the Green Dragon Tavern printed on one side and an engraving of the historic building on the other. You can also get the coffee in a bundle that includes a stoneware mug decorated with the Green Dragon logo and a matching sticker. If you're not in the market for a hot beverage, you can also get a sticker of Benjamin Franklin's signature or several different products with Franklin's own 1754 Join or Die design. And if you act quickly, you might be able to get a t-shirt or sticker bearing the logo for Benjamin Franklin's Printhouse and Bindery on clearance. You can get 20% off of any order and help support the show when you shop at libertyand.co and use the discount code HUBHISTORY at checkout. That's L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-A-N-D dot C-O and use the discount code HUBHISTORY. And now it's time for this week's main topic, which starts this week in Boston's North End. I'm just walking up Hull Street from Old North Church to Copps Hill Burying Ground on the Freedom Trail and up the stone steps into the burying ground. It's actually Christmas Eve, and as I come into the burying ground, the ground is still unshoveled, a little bit of snow left from last week's big storm. So I make my way down the path directly inside the gate, just straight ahead between the two rows of 17th and 18th century stone uh, slate markers with death's heads and urns and cherubs and all the funeral art of early Massachusetts. I'm coming up on the first uh, cross path, cross street within the the burying ground. It's marked by a black fountain. Would have been a drinking fountain at one point. So I take a left there and I come up behind a very uniquely shaped stone. It's a, a triple stone. It's got two larger sections on either side and a third in the middle take a left and walk around where I can see the face of it. The outsides are very richly decorated with sort of a floral scene, flowers and vines. The two larger sections of the stone each have uh, winged death's heads, so the winged skulls that are so common in 18th century uh, Massachusetts cemeteries. The center section has 
a winged cherub's head. So you can tell it's a little bit of a, a transitional time. It's something that headstone researcher Caitlin DeAngelis called a rare example of winged skulls and a winged soul effigy on the same stone. If I get a little closer, I can read the inscriptions. And starting from the left, the inscription on the largest section on the left says, Here lies the body of Mr. George Worthy Lake, died November the 3rd, 1718, in the 45th year of his age. And of course, being the, the age of the stone, the these are spelled with the thorn that looks like a Y, so it looks like here lies ye body, but that's a, a 17th century the. And over on the far right, the other large section, it says, here lies the body of Mrs. Anne Worthy Lake, wife to Mr. George Worthy Lake, died November the 3rd, 1718, in the something year of her life, year of her age. And the actual, uh, the number, the age has been covered by grass and soil as the, the stone settled a bit in the ground. And the small section in between with the sole effigy or the winged cherub above it, very narrow section, has a, a slightly smaller uh, letters, the inscription, Ruth, daughter of Mr. George and Mrs. Ann Worthy Lake, died November the 3rd, 1718, in the 13th year of her age. These three inscriptions together on the same stone obviously represent a terrible tragedy in the Worthy Lake family on the, November the 3rd, 1718. Something terrible befell the family of the first keeper of the first lighthouse in North America on that day. And to understand what happened to his family, we first have to understand why Boston needed a lighthouse that was still almost brand new in 1718. Now, part of the reason that the Shawmut Peninsula was so attractive, first to William Blackston, the first English settler of what's now Boston, and then to John Winthrop and his Arbella fleet, was its well-protected harbor. We have two sheltering arms reaching out from each side of the harbor. We have the Nahant Peninsula coming down from the north and Nantasket up from the south, nearly surrounding the, the mouth of the harbor. And between them, we have dozens of islands, large and small. They dull the fury of the ocean waves and storms. And standing here at Copps Hill, if it weren't for the buildings around me, I'd be able to look right out past Old North Church. And when I've looked out from the steeple of Old North Church before, you can see all the way out to the outer harbor and you can see the islands of Boston Harbor from here. And on a good day, you can see Boston Light, which is only appropriate to see from the headstone of the first keeper of that light. Unfortunately, the same islands that shelter our harbor also form a dangerous maze of shoals and underwater rocks that are undetectable from the surface. The makers of early maps, charts, and atlases, like the Atlantic Neptune, would often include elevation drawings of the shoreline and islands to show mariners what they should see from the safe channels leading to shore. Those early map makers would always include depth soundings and compass bearings to show navigators exactly how to trace the best routes to shore. Then as now, the safest channel into Boston Harbor was King's Roads, although today, of course, we call it President's Roads. Sailing outbound from Long Wharf, today you pass the Logan Airport Hyatt on the port side and Castle Island to starboard. Back in 1718, Castle Island was an actual island, and Governor's Island hadn't yet been erased to make room for the airport. After squeezing between the two fortified islands, the outer harbor opened up before you, and you'd make a turn to port, keeping Spectacle Island and Long Island on your right shoulder, as you sailed almost to the tip of Deer Island then turn back to starboard to enter the treacherous narrows. You would make your turn around the shoals known as Nix's Mate, an island that would have been barely above water at high tide in 1718, but is invisible today at high tide except for a strikingly striped granite monument marking the danger. Then you shoot through the narrow channel between Gallops and George's Island on your right and Lovell's Island on the left, both nearly close enough to reach out and touch. Today, Fort Warren is preserved on George's, and Fort Standish has fallen to ruins on Lovell's. But in the early 1700s, they were both used for farming and firewood. Past the Narrows, you'd come about to port again and have a straight shot into the open ocean, keeping a safe distance from Outer Brewster, Middle Brewster, Great Brewster, and Little Brewster Islands off the port side. An inbound ship would follow the same path, 
but like Ginger Rogers, backwards and in high heels. The trick was to find the mouth of the Narrows and not be deceived by the many similar-looking islands and channels in the outer harbor. The sheer number of ships that have wrecked and sunk in Boston Harbor over the past 400 years are testament to how difficult it can be to navigate. It was easy for an early 18th century mariner to get confused when pulling into a strange port, and even a local captain could be led astray in foul weather. But for an unfamiliar crew in a storm, forget about it. Shag Rocks, Nix's mate, or the ominously named Graves would have their sacrifice. Today, inbound ships know to line up Boston Light, the most picture-perfect New England lighthouse you can imagine, on their starboard side, right over their right shoulders, to find their way into the Narrows. If you've ever approached Boston by boat, which was the primary way to get here for the first 250 or so years of the city's history, you know just how warm and welcoming the lighthouse can be. On a summertime visit to Provincetown with co-host Nikki one time, we got into an accident and had to have the car very expensively towed back to Boston. To try to get to work on time, we ended up booking tickets on the 6 a.m. Monday fast ferry back to Boston. That morning was a real personal low point. Believing I had totaled my car, having to shell out last-minute prices for a downtown Providence hotel during the busy season, walking to the ferry through the early morning rain, and just generally dreading going back to work in the morning. It's hard to describe the sudden burst of joy I felt when I saw the whitewashed tower of Boston Light take shape on the horizon, slowly getting taller as the keeper's house, oil bunker, and boathouse took shape. As we passed by it, I had this warming feeling that I was home, I was safe, and everything was going to be all right. Some 340 years before I wrecked my car, Dutch colonist Jasper Dankertz recorded his own voyage through Boston Harbor on the way to a short-lived Dutch colony in today's Maryland. In June of 1680, he wrote in his diary, There are many small islands before Boston, well on to 50, I believe, between which you sail on to the city. A high one, or the highest, is the first that you meet. It's 12 miles from the city and has a lighthouse upon it which you can see from a great distance for it is in other respects naked and bare. In sailing by this island, you keep it on the west side. On the other side, there's an island with many rocks upon and around it, and when you pass by it, you must be careful, as a shoal pushes out from it, which you must sail round. You then have an island in front, in the shape of a battery, which you also leave on the larboard, and then you come in sight of the island upon which the fort stands, where the flag is flown when the ships are entering. That, too, lies to the larboard and then you pass close enough to it for them to hail the ship, what you are, from whence you came, and where you are bound, etc. When you're there, you see the city lying directly before you, and so you sail into the bay before the town and cast anchor. There is a high hill in the city, also with a lighthouse upon it, by which you can hold your course in entering. The island upon which the fort stands was Castle Island, and the lighthouse he describes as being on a high hill in the city may be the beacon on Beacon Hill, though I'm not aware of it being lit as a navigation aid. But I'm not sure what island lighthouse he was referring to. Wherever it was, it was gone by the beginning of the 18th century. Because as that century began, Bostonians began advocating for a new lighthouse to protect them and their commerce. In 1701, Samuel Clough's Almanac asked, Whether or no a lighthouse at Alderton's Point may not be of great benefit to mariners coming on these coasts. Alderton's Point would be the outer section of Hull, now known as Point Allerton. Since the town of Boston didn't own any of the outer harbor islands where a lighthouse was needed, it would take cooperation between towns, or action by the province, to get a light erected. Early in 1713, a prominent Boston merchant and selectman named John George, representing the business community of the city, proposed to the general court the erecting of a lighthouse and lanthorn on some headland at the entrance to the harbor of Boston for the direction of ships and vessels in the nighttime bound into the said harbor. A legislative committee of the general court responded, We did therefore on the 13th of March instant, being attended by several of the most experienced masters of ships belonging to Boston and Charlestown, go down to the outermost islands at the entrance of Boston Harbor. And after our landing on several of the said islands, and surveying the same and conferring with the said masters thereon, who are unanimous in their opinion, 
We report as followeth that the southernmost part of the Great Brewster, called Beacon Island, is the most convenient place for the erecting a lighthouse. It took some time to figure out how to go about financing the lighthouse and who would own the land it stood on, but in 1715 the General Court passed an act for building and maintaining a lighthouse upon the Great Brewster, called Beacon Island, at the entrance of the harbor of Boston. And it said, Whereas the one of a lighthouse at the entrance of the harbor of Boston hath been a great discouragement to navigation by the loss of the lives and estates of several of His Majesty's subjects, for prevention whereof, be it enacted by His Excellency the Governor, Council, and Representatives in General Court assembled, and by the authority of the same, that there be a lighthouse erected at the charge of the province on the southernmost part of the Great Brewster called Beacon Island, to be kept lighted from sunsetting to sunrising. The law established a one penny per ton duty for all incoming or outgoing vessels to fund the operation of the light. It also detailed a number of types of vessels that would be exempted from the duty, mostly allowing local fishermen and coasting vessels to pay an annual flat fee. And it explained how the vessels that weren't exempted would be measured for the duty. The cost of building the lighthouse on Beacon Island came to £2,385, and the Boston Newsletter of September 17, 1716 reported, The lighthouse has been built, and on Friday last the 14th current, the light was kindled. The 1715 Act for Building and Maintaining a Lighthouse also provides for the lighthouse keeper, who lit the light for the first time on September 14, 1716. And be it further enacted, by the authority aforesaid, that the person who shall be appointed from time to time by the General Accorder Assembly to be the keeper of the said lighthouse shall carefully and diligently attend to his duty at all times, and kindling the lights from sunsetting to sunrising, and placing them so as they may be most seen by vessels coming in or going out. A separate act of the legislature in 1716 set the compensation for the lighthouse keeper. Resolved that the sum of fifty pounds be allowed and paid out of the public treasury for the hire of a person to take care of the lighthouse for the first year, to begin when the lights are set and kept up, and the committee appointed to take care of the building the lighthouse are desired to procure a suitable person to keep it. That committee found their suitable person in George Worthylake. Worthylake only became notable to history for taking the job as a lighthouse keeper, so sources about his early life are scarce. Some accounts say that he was raised on a farm on George's Island, and if that's true, he would have been an experienced harbor pilot, since he would have had to navigate around the islands and shoals any time he came or went. When George took the job in 1716, the Worthy Lake household was fairly large. Today, there's a spacious and incredibly picturesque keeper's house on Little Brewster Island, but there's very little information about what the keeper's quarters were like in 1716. Even descriptions of the lighthouse itself are inexact, so we certainly don't know what the keeper's quarters were like. In any case, there had to be enough space for all the family members who moved to the island in mid-September of 1716. There was George and his wife Anne, who were in their early 40s, along with their daughter Ruth, who was about 11, and her younger sister, also named Anne. However, the Worthy Lake household also included an African-American couple named Dina and Shadwell, whom the Worthy Lakes enslaved, along with a white man named George Cutler, who was serving a term of indenture to the family. Any expenses that the family incurred in keeping the lighthouse maintained were provided by the province, as specified in the 1716 Acts and Resolves of the General Court. Ordered that the commissioner of the impost be directed to supply the keeper of the lighthouse with oil, wicks, and candles for maintaining the lights as often as he shall have occasion, and with such other things as may be necessary for the same, and bring the charge into his account. However, all the expenses involved in family life were up to the Worthy Lakes, and the fifty pounds a year that George earned as a lighthouse keeper would have been less than a living wage. Luckily, he was able to supplement that income by working as a harbor pilot and the family also farmed on the side. Writing in the New England Lighthouse's virtual guide, Jeremy de Entremont says, Worthy Lake maintained a farm on Lovell's Island, closer to Boston, and he also kept a flock of sheep on Great Brewster Island. 
59 of his sheep were caught on the long sand spit off Great Brewster during a 1717 storm. They drowned when the tide came in. After about a year on the job, George Worthy Lake went back to the legislature and asked for a raise. In the 1717 Acts and Resolves, we learn that he got it. The following resolve passed in the House of Representatives. In answer to the petition of George Worthy Lake, Redden concurred, Resolved that the sum of 70 pounds be allowed to the petitioner for his service in taking care of the lighthouse the year ensuing. Unfortunately, that ensuing year would be cut short for George and much of his family. Jeremy de Entremont describes a weekend trip to the mainland that led to the tragedy enshrined on the Worthy Lake Stone at Copps Hill. In early November 1718, Worthy Lake went to Boston with his wife and their 15-year-old daughter, Ruth. They reportedly attended church in Boston on Sunday, November 2nd. Some sources indicate that Worthy Lake also picked up his pay during the visit to the city. In any case, they left to return to Boston Light on Monday morning, November 3rd. On their way back, they stopped at Lovell's Island, where Worthy Lake and his wife and daughter boarded a sloop headed for Boston Light. A friend named John Edge accompanied them. Witnesses later said that the party were seen to eat and drink very friendly while aboard the sloop, though not to excess. A little while later, the sloop dropped anchor near Little Brewster Island, and George Worthy Lake hailed the enslaved man Shadwell to come out and meet them in a small boat. He came to get them and picked up George, Anne, Ruth, the indentured servant George Cutler, and their friend John Edge. The edition of the Boston Newsletter from November 10, 1718, picks up the narrative from there. On Monday last, the third current, an awful and lamentable providence fell out here. Mr. George Worthy Lake, master of the lighthouse upon Great Brewster, called Beacon Island, at the entrance of Boston Harbor, and his wife, Ruth their daughter, George Cutler, a servant, Shadwell their Negro slave, and Mr. John Edge, a passenger, being on the Lord's Day here at Sermon and going home in a sloop, dropped anchor near the landing place, and all got into a little boat or canoe, designing to go on shore, but by accident overwhelmed it, so that they were drowned and all found and interred except George Cutler. As the younger Anne, and one assumes also Dina, watched helplessly from the shore on Little Brewster, the small and overloaded boat foundered, and nearly the entire family drowned. We might not remember a family tragedy over 300 years later if it was not compounded by a further tragedy less than two weeks later. This time, it involved Robert Saunders, who'd been hired to look after the light until a new keeper could be found. The November 17, 1718 Boston Newsletter describes the second accident. There being a necessity to supply Mr. Worthy Lake's place to keep up the lights on that island, Captain Robert Saunders and two others namely John Chamberlain and one Braddock, were appointed to go down, who accordingly went on Friday last to the lighthouse about three o'clock, and a ship coming in from sea put out a waft, and Captain Saunders with the other two went on board her, and Captain Saunders inquired if they wanted a pilot, seeing they made a sign for them. The master said no, he only wanted to know what the news was, whereupon Captain Saunders told him that if he had known so much, he would not have ventured aboard in such stormy weather. So returning to their boat to come on shore, a saw of wind overset her. Captain Saunders and Braddock both drowned. Mr. Chamberlain swam directly to the shore, but rested upon rocks ere he got to the shore, where he laid before the fire and begun to revive, and is now lying sick in Boston. Two more deaths, and for such trivial reasons. These back-to-back tragedies inspired a young printer's apprentice to try his hand at poetry. Then just 12 or 13 years old, the Boston Latin School dropout worked for his brother at the New England Courant. In another year or two, he would publish a series of letters under the pseudonym Silence Do Good, and not long after that, Benjamin Franklin would skip out on his apprenticeship and leave for Philadelphia. Writing much later in his autobiography, he recalled his early foray into poetry. I now took a fancy to poetry and made some little pieces. My brother, thinking it might turn to account, encouraged me and put me on composing two occasional ballads. One was called The Lighthouse Tragedy, 
and contained an account of the drowning of Captain Worthy Lake with his two daughters. The other was a sailor song on the taking of Teach, or Blackbeard the Pirate. They were wretched stuff, in the Grub Street ballad style. Samuel Johnson's 1755 Dictionary clarifies that Grub Street was originally the name of a street, much inhabited by writers of small histories, dictionaries, and temporary poems, whence any mean production is called Grub Street. So, Ben Franklin's poems were in the Grub Street style, and when they were printed, he sent me about the town to sell them. The first sold wonderfully, the event being recent, having made a great noise. This flattered my vanity, but my father discouraged me by ridiculing my performances and telling me that verse-makers were generally beggars. So I escaped being a poet, most probably a very bad one. No matter what he thought of them personally, the two ballads Benjamin Franklin wrote in Boston were the earliest known publications by a man who had gone to be a founding father and an important thinker in the American Enlightenment. From the moment of Franklin's death, eager scholars have been searching for these two lost ballads that would show them the origin of his narrative voice. One of the scholars who was on that hunt was Edward Everett Hale, a writer and Unitarian minister active in Boston at the turn of the 20th century. In an 1898 edition of the New England Magazine, he described his search for the lighthouse tragedy. The sale of the Worthy Lake Ballad was prodigious. The event was so recent. But alas, not a copy, nay, not a line of it is now known to exist. I have searched for it for 50 years without success. And Dr. Shirtliff, whose opportunities were much better than mine, is my authority for saying that it appears to be wholly lost. The nearest approach to it, which I ever had, was when, 40 years ago, I asked a ballad seller on Tremont Street at the South End in Boston if he had the lighthouse tragedy. No, Mr. Hale, he said, but I will have it for you this afternoon. Alas, that afternoon has evaded me ever since, even as tomorrow does. Hale was also searching for Franklin's other lost poem believed to be titled The Ballad of Blackbeard, which was written at about the same time. On my visiting the Navy Department of the United States in March last, in the midst of wars and rumors of wars, the attentive librarian of that department placed in my hands a new volume recently published in London. It is called Some Real Sea Songs, and was edited by the very competent hands of Mr. John Ashton. In that volume, with the affectation of it being a facsimile reprint, I found to my delight the downfall of piracy. I have little doubt that this is the lost ballad of Franklin. First, it exactly fits his description of being sad stuff. It is just such a thing as a bright boy of 13 who's been once successful would have written. Second, it bears distinct marks of a newspaper office. The line in the last verse, we're informed by a letter writ, is exactly in the editorial swing as the average editor of today even would use it. Third, it is absolutely correct in every detail. It is indeed encumbered by its detail, as of the marriage to the North Carolina girl, who it is said was his 13th wife. By analyzing the language used in the ballad and the flow of information between the colonies in the 17-teens, Thomas C. Leonard confirmed Hale's conclusion that the ballad was the work of Ben Franklin in a 1999 article in the New England Quarterly. A sample of the text of The Downfall of Piracy, then, should give us a feel for what the lighthouse tragedy would sound like. Here, then, are a few lines from the climax starting as Blackbeard prepares himself for Captain Maynard to board his ship for their final duel. He took the glass and drank damnation unto Maynard and his crew, to himself in generation, then the glass away he threw. Brave Maynard was resolved to have him, though he'd cannons nine or ten. Teach a broadside quickly gave him, killing sixteen valiant men. Maynard boarded him, and to it, they fell with sword and pistol too. They had courage and did show it, killing all of the pirate's crew. Teach and Maynard on the quarter fought it out most manfully. Maynard's sword did cut him shorter. Losing his head, he there did die. Almost a half-century after Edward Everett Hale described his search for the lost lighthouse tragedy, 
Bostonians were surprised to read in the August 7, 1940 Boston Post that the ballot had resurfaced in an unexpected location. I couldn't put my hands on the Post story, but here's how the Associated Press reported it. Maurice Babcock Jr., son of the Keeper of Boston Light, said he found the tattered, yellowed single sheet in Old English characters in the pocket of a rotting leather jacket he stumbled across in the ruins of an old house on Middle Brewster Island in the harbor. The ballad was mentioned in Franklin's autobiography, but Franklin's students have never been able to find a copy. In the story of his life, Franklin relates that he wrote it as a boy of 14 at the inducement of his brother, a printer. It was inspired by the news of the drowning of George Worthylake, first keeper of Boston Light, his wife, and their daughter Ruth. The brother printed it, and young Ben hawked copies about the streets of Boston. With much fanfare, the poem was printed in the local press, with the last few stanzas going, Though starting in the Brewster's Lee, rough and empty rolls the sea, low the boat too deeply laden, heavy hearts make heavy burden. Now they reach the open channel, where flood tide breasts the gale, rears a toppling wall of water, making Anne's cheeks grow pale. Quick the prow is upward borne, George in Anne's arms is thrown, husband, wife, and child together, to the chilly waves have gone. Frenzied clasp of wife and daughter bears the sturdy swimmer down, save the boat upon the water, nothing of their fate is known. Many years later, in 1988, Maurice Babcock recalled how he knew what he had found in that house on Middle Brewster. I saw the words George Worthy Lake, and that's what recalled to my attention that it was uh, George Worthy Lake who was the first keeper of Boston Light back in 1716. And I knew that through Edward Rose Snow's telling us the history and gathering information for his books. And also, how the press was alerted about the lost ballad. In the meantime, Mr. Snow had come down the island to visit, and he had, uh, my mother indicated, he says, uh, my son found this uh, ballad by Benjamin Franklin over in uh, Brewster. And Edward, Edward Snow looked at it, and he said, well, do you mind if I take this for a minute, and, or take it? look it over so my mother gave it to him never thinking to see it again because we thought it was just a piece of paper and he took it a couple of weeks later we went uh, ashore to the uh, hall to pick up the Sunday paper and that's when we found out that this uh, ballad that had been written by Benjamin Franklin was of such importance there's a bit of a problem with that narrative the meter and style are plainly different from the Blackbeard ballad and as an editorial note in the National Archives Founders Online database dryly explains, the manuscript proved on examination to be in a 19th century hand. It was a hoax. It's not clear whether young Maurice Babcock knew that the poem he gave to Edward Rowe Snow was a fake or not, but it's time for us to have a little heart-to-heart about Edward Rowe Snow. If you've been listening to Hub History for a while, you might have noticed that this is the fourth hoax, legend, or myth that we've discussed on the show that's linked directly to Snow. In our first show about pirates in Boston, way back in July 2017, we quoted Snow's account where he claimed to have found William Fly's gibbet on Nix's mate. And at the time, I didn't know enough to be skeptical. Throughout the mid-20th century, Edward Rose Snow was considered the preeminent historian of Boston Harbor, the islands, and maritime New England in general. Unfortunately, he would credulously repeat poorly sourced stories and, after a while, began completely fabricating them. For example, when we talked about the tunnels under Boston's North End in episode 143, we found that Edward Snow was so in love with the idea of a widespread tunnel network that he never tried to validate the story. And just a few weeks later, in episode 147, we told the story of the pirate Rachel Wall and discovered that the original source of the idea that Rachel, who was executed for a highway robbery, had been a pirate, originated in Snow's imagination. Edward Rose Snow loved the history and legends of the Boston Harbor Islands, but after a while he couldn't tell one from the other. Snow grew up in Winthrop, with Boston Harbor serving as his dooryard and playground. 
When he graduated from high school, he spent a decade traveling the world as a sailor, before enrolling at Harvard at the ripe old age of 27. In 1935, he published a book about Castle Island, then immediately followed it up with The Islands of Boston Harbor. Based on a college thesis, the Harbor Islands book was a huge hit, finding its way to bookshelves and coffee tables across New England and helping to spark the movement that led to the Harbor Islands being preserved as a national park. He published nine more books before the end of the 1940s, cementing his role as a pop culture figure in Boston and around New England. In the 40s and 50s, he hosted a radio program called Six Bells every Sunday at 3 p.m. He was given a daily newspaper column in the Patriot Ledger in the 50s, and once television came along, he was a frequent guest on local TV. He would eventually author over a hundred books and magazine articles. His 1982 obituary in the Globe said, He told tall tales on radio programs, wrote newspaper columns of sea and ghost stories for a number of regional papers, and was a frequent lecturer and speaker at functions. Mr. Snow often searched for buried or sunken treasure along the New England coast, guided by old maps, diaries, and ship's logs. He conducted many underwater explorations. In 1944, after a long search, he claimed to have found the wreck of the steamer Portland, which had foundered en route to Portland, Maine in a blinding storm in the winter of 1898, nine miles northeast of Race Point. However, these claims were often the subject of published disputes by other maritime authorities at the time. The obituary also quoted an earlier statement he had given to the Globe. What I really like to do is to find a story so improbable that no one will believe it, and then prove beyond a doubt that it's true. I do think that folklore is important and that it should be preserved. The problem is that his gullibility for folklore ran high, and his standards for proof ran fairly low. Over the past four-plus years of podcasting about Boston history, I've learned to take his books of history with a grain of salt. However, when you know how much joy Edward Rowe Snow brought to children on isolated islands and outcrops around New England, it's hard to hold his low editorial standards against him. During the Second World War, Snow enlisted in the Army Air Corps and served as an aerial photographer with the 12th Air Force, flying either A-20s or B-17s. In 1942, he was the only survivor of a mission over North Africa and was discharged due to the severity of his wounds. Both before and after the war, he briefly taught high school history, and it was through a student that he found his lifelong calling. In a profile of Snow for the Boston Athenaeum, Nicole Critchley writes, During his brief tenure teaching at Winthrop High, one of his students got him involved with his father, Captain William Winkapaw, who had started dropping Christmas gifts to remote islands in 1929. In 1936, Snow joined him. Snow was the perfect choice of volunteer because of his hobby taking aerial photos of lighthouses. After Winkapaw died suddenly in 1947, Edward Rowe Snow took up the fur-trimmed red mantle and became the Flying Santa himself. In an article for Harvard Magazine, Sarah Hoagland Hunter describes what his holiday flights were like. Flying at what would be illegally low altitudes today, cutting the speed to ensure accuracy, the plane would circle the towers three times, once to signal, once to make the drop, and a third time to check the drop. Simple gifts, a doll, candy, and a copy of his latest book, along with the cost of leasing a plane and pilot, came from Snow's pocket. Even after he became a local celebrity, his family lived frugally to fund the annual flights. We always had piles of stuff around the house, waiting to be bundled, daughter Dolly Snow Bicknell reports. She recalls, The signs that people had made on the ground, Hi Santa and Merry Christmas, and when we landed the refuel and got to meet some of the families, I saw how special this tradition really was, how much people appreciated what he did. Edward Rowe Snow died in 1982, but the tradition of the Flying Santa lives on. Friends of Flying Santa president Brian Tague described how his organization carries on the tradition in a December 2019 article in Smithsonian Magazine. Our mission remains dedicated to William Winkapaw and Edward Rose Snow's philosophy that lighthouse keepers and coast guard crews were the true lifesavers, 
and deserve to be recognized for their efforts. As long as there are boat station crews, aids to navigation teams, and other units serving to keep our waters safe, we'll do our part to remind them of how much their work is appreciated. That's not the only tradition that remains. Starting in the late 1980s, the Coast Guard began automating its light stations and eliminating lighthouse keepers. Thanks to Senator Ted Kennedy, however, a special section of the Coast Guard Authorization Act of 1989 recognizes the unique value of the nation's first light station and its keeper, stating, The Boston Light is a National Historic Landmark, and Little Brewster Island is listed in the National Register of Historic Places. As such, they should be administered and maintained in a way that preserves for public enjoyment and appreciation their special historic character. Continued manned operation of the Boston Light will preserve its special historic character. Any proposal to automate or modernize Boston Light must be consistent with the National Historic Preservation Act. The Boston Light shall be operated on a permanently manned basis. Today, Dr. Sally Snowman is the keeper of Boston Light, continuing an unbroken line of service that began with George Worthy Lake. In an interview with NPR in 2016, Snowman described how she fell in love with Boston Light as a young girl. I'm the 70th keeper of Boston Light. The first 69 were all men. I just think of it as the best government housing in the United States. Oh, how could I forget that day? I came to visit the island with my dad and stepped off the dinghy onto the beach and looked up at this 89-foot tower and said, When I grow up, I want to get married out here. In 1994, she made that dream a reality, marrying her fiancé on the grassy lawn at the foot of the lighthouse tower. That same year, she started volunteering with the Coast Guard Auxiliary. In 2003, she was hired as the first civilian keeper of Boston Light since before World War II. She maintains and services the lighthouse mechanisms and fog signal, supervises volunteers, and carefully cleans the 1856 Second Order Fresnel lens. If you visit after the pandemic is over, Sally Snowman will greet you at the pier and answer every question you might have about the history or operation of the lighthouse that she's dedicated a career to. In 2016, during the celebration of the light station's 300th anniversary, Snowman told the Coast Guard Compass, A very unique thing occurs every night when the sun goes down. There are 12 separate rays that go out. When there's any moisture in the air, it really magnifies those beams, and they appear to drop down onto the horizon. It's just an optical illusion. It feels so safe. Nothing is going to harm me. Those are the guardian lights. Boston Light now faces an uncertain future. Back in May of 2020, the Coast Guard abruptly announced that it was looking for a new steward for the lighthouse on Little Brewster Island, with the Boston Globe reporting, For the past 20 years, the National Lighthouse Preservation Act of 2000 has provided a way for the federal government to transfer historic lighthouses to other entities, including state and local governments, nonprofit corporations, and educational and community development organizations. The NHLPA meets the U.S. Coast Guard's statutory mandate to develop a plan to provide public access to Light Station Boston and Little Brewster Island, and to ensure the special historic character of the light will be preserved, officials said in a press release. The U.S. Coast Guard trusts the NHLPA process, which has led to over 100 successful lighthouse transfers across the country, to bring about the best steward for Light Station Boston. Other recent changes in stewardship on Boston Harbor make me worried for the future of Boston Light. One only has to look a few islands away to Pedix, within sight of Boston Light, for a cautionary tale. There, the current utilization plan cooked up by the National Park Service, DCR, and Boston Harbor Islands Partnership calls for historic Fort Andrews to be bulldozed to make room for a luxury resort and conference center. Hopefully this so-called change in stewardship for Boston Light will mean that the lighthouse that has welcomed ships to our harbor for 305 years will continue to stand, open to the public, manned by a keeper, and beaming its guardian lights upon the water. To learn more about Boston Light and the lighthouse tragedy, check out this week's show notes 
at hubhistory.com slash 213. I'll have a link to Jasper Denkert's diary entry about seeing an earlier Boston Harbor lighthouse in 1680, as well as legislative records showing how the act enabling construction of Boston Light was debated and passed. I'll include a link to the passage in Ben Franklin's autobiography where he dismisses the quality of his two early ballads, and Edward Everett Hale's description of his search for the two lost ballads. I'll also be sure to link to the 1940 AP story about the hoax ballad found on Middle Brewster, more details on the Flying Santas, and information about the upcoming sale of Boston Light. Before I let you go, there's some listener feedback I'd like to share. First up, our friends over at the Boston African American National Historic Site shared a couple of our episodes on Facebook, saying, Need something to listen to during your next walk? Why not bring a ranger with you? Download these podcast episodes from Hub History that feature two of our staff discussing the Maritime Underground Railroad, with a link to episode 135, where we interviewed Sean Quigley, and the LGBTQ plus history of Beacon Hill, linking to episode 193, where we spoke with Megan Linger. We also got an email from a longtime listener who had a few suggestions about interviews and incorporating other historical resources, but also included this nice note. Hi, Hub History. I'm one of your dedicated listeners. I think for about three years, as my child moved to Boston for college, and your podcast was and is a fun guide to the city. I listened to your anniversary episode this afternoon on my commute. Thanks for the podcast and all the time and effort you give. Your work is enjoyed and appreciated. It's always fun to say, did you know, with interesting facts I've learned from the show. Thanks, Marla. Thanks for getting in touch, Marla. And don't worry, we have more great interviews in the works. A much newer listener emailed as well, saying, I just learned about Hub History from the Preservation Alliance. Congratulations on receiving the Preservation Achievement Award. I see that one of your recent podcasts is about early Boston transportation. I thought you might enjoy the attached from the Boston Post, if you haven't seen it before. I came across it while trawling through old papers for tidbits for backbayhouses.org. Best, Tom. Tom's email included Boston Post clippings from 1896 about a Boston man who thought he could use the Earth's magnetism to power an airship flight to the North Pole which is exactly the sort of overly optimistic transit and infrastructure nonsense that I get a kick out of. We were surprised and a bit intimidated by the assignment that we learned about in an email from listener Brenda. Hi, Nikki and Jake. I'm a graduate history student at UMass Boston, and I'm reaching out regarding an assignment we have to analyze one of your Hub History podcasts. It's a great assignment, and I'm enjoying sampling a wide array of your topics. Let me also congratulate you on your recent award from the Boston Preservation Alliance. What a wonderful honor. Sincerely, Brenda. Brenda also included a couple of questions about episode 197, which focused on the deportation of the Acadians from their homeland to Boston. Brenda, I'm still waiting to hear what professor was crazy enough to assign our show. Over on Twitter, a different Brenda commented on our interview with the authors of The People's History of Greater Boston in 192. Congrats on a great piece. Love seeing all the info on Boston. My father was a utilities contractor, and right near Post Office Square, there's a vast underground pneumatic tube system, with wooden pipes, etc. Early bank security. So cool to see what used to be. I have to say that pneumatic tubes are exactly the sort of quirky infrastructure that warms my icy heart. Thanks for passing that along, other Brenda. And after listening to our interview with Stephen Wilk about his book Lost Wonderland in episode 211, Virginia tweeted, Today I learned, from listening to this episode, that shoot-the-shoot rides were popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And now I'm wondering if that's why kids in my childhood called a swing set slide a shooty shoot. That's pretty cool, Virginia, but you have to tell us where shooty shoot was common playground parlance. Listener David responded to episode 212 about the Puritan War on Christmas with a personal connection. Happy Holidays! The War on Christmas is an excellent episode that wraps up the history of Christmas in New England in a neat, comprehensive bow. 
With Increase Mather being my eighth great paternal grandfather, this is a special gift. I look forward to listening to the other episodes. I like how you take a thread and weave a tail. Thanks for writing, David. I'm glad you found the episode, and I hope that Increase would think we represented his beliefs fairly. David also shared the episode on his family history blog, and you can find a link to that post in the show notes. Gene heard the same Christmas episode and tweeted, This was a whole lot of fun, and he has references you can look up. Gene, we always have references. That's half the fun. Finally, listener Peter N. brought up an interesting question and a comment on our Patreon page. He said, I'm confused about your web presence. I love your podcast, and I'm one of your Patreon patrons, but where do you consider to be the focus of your online community? I hope it's not Facebook, because I don't like Facebook or have an account with them. Thanks in advance for clarifying this. In a way, we're all over the place. We respond to patron comments on Patreon, we love getting emails, and I'll always read and respond to comments posted at hubhistory.com. However, the two big social media networks are really where most people choose to engage with us. I don't like Facebook either, but lots of people do, so there is some conversation on Facebook at facebook.com slash hubhistory. Fun fact, co-host Emerita Nikki mostly manages our Facebook page. I'm most active on Twitter. Follow at hubhistory and you'll see that I'm always on there sharing Boston history factoids, promoting the show, and just generally being social. If you're looking to engage with Hub History on a regular basis, Twitter is probably the best bet. We love getting listener feedback, whether you're related to one of the subjects of the show, you have insider information about underground pneumatic tubes, or you're just curious about the best way to engage with us online. If you want to leave us some feedback on this episode or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. As mentioned, we're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. <laughs>